Hey, Nick here. Just a quick preface before this episode starts. This was originally going to be Andy Milburn on episode 23, but Russia invaded Ukraine, and so we pushed this episode back. We had a plan of maybe splitting this episode up into two parts because Andy talks about his journey, and it's fantastic. I'll let you hear that later. And maybe combining that with some other journeys that we know of and just kind of launching a new series, but we're leaving it intact. Um, This was going to be episode 23, But instead, it's now going to be this episode, and the irony is that we bumped this episode for Ukraine, and now Andy is in Ukraine. So, kind of feel like we should have had it out earlier, but he's there now, so so we're wishing him support, and I'm going to throw it on back to Pass Nick. Hello, welcome to episode 23 of Scuttlebutt, a Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. Will. Howdy. And we have special guest Andy Milburn in the house. Our second returning guest. Great to be back. It is awesome to have you back. Thank you. So it is just, uh, we have so much more to talk to Andy about today. So we're just going to cut the chatter and get right to it. We did, if you could, just take a few minutes just to tell us who you are, um, some of your wickets like why you're here sort of thing um why why i'm here particularly today i'm still trying to figure that out how i I got here well i mean we saw you on the street and it's cold outside by uh by all means yeah my name is andy milburn i am a retired marine colonel for my sins uh (laughs) i uh i was in the marine corps for about 31 years uh, background as an infantry and special operations officer and ended up at uh, Special Operations Command Central as the deputy commander right before retiring. And as you can probably tell from my accent, I am uh, what they would might call a first-generation immigrant. My first taste of the United States, my first introduction to the U.S. was uh, Paris Island, which gives you, uh, which gives you kind of a, 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 a clue to uh, um, perhaps my, uh, my origins. Net, definitely not why I chose to, uh, to stay here. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it, you know, over the course of uh, certainly the last uh, last two decades, I've been very fortunate to be find myself in um, positions that proved to be both challenging and rewarding, and uh, learned some extremely hard lessons, which I think are not always the easy way. Which I think is the reason why I'm here today. Absolutely, is that sir. enough yeah. of background. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so, that's the recap from last. Yeah, time. we're gonna yeah. definitely we're gonna get into all those things because there's just a lot of really uh, juicy nuggets there. Um, but other things that you've uh, mentioned that I'll uh, I'll definitely lift you up. I know you're, you're, you're extremely humble, and we appreciate that. But also, also author um, of When the Tempest Gathers, which is um, being considered for the Commandant's reading list. So congratulations on that. Well, Huge. yeah, thank you. Let's let's hope it is a uh, uh, ultimately a congratulations. So um, I for that for your listeners, I'm not suggesting for a moment that you canvas. Uh, the you know that like the uh, the board for the commandant's reading list or the commandant himself. But, but if you were to do that, <laughs> but if you were, <laughs> but if you were, that would be quite okay with with me. Yeah, and that chronicles your time as the commander of Joint Special Operations Task Force in the fight against ISIS. It, it does. Yeah, that's you know that's the last uh, quarter you know quarter to a third of the book. But the book uh, itself is is about my career, and I say that um, though. It's couched, I hope, in not uh, not a boring manner, and nor is it a seal 
autobiography with a lot of chest thumping and there yeah, I was. Yeah, there was. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I try to make it as entertaining as I, as I could and, and as honest as I could. So I think those of yeah. you who've read it will say that it's kind of a warts and all and, and I certainly uh, talk a lot about the mistakes I've made and, as I've said, the hard lessons I've learned along the way. Sure. I, no, I think one of the aspects of the book, I think, and why I would definitely proposition for it to be on the commandments reading list is that level of vulnerability that you don't normally see from someone that says like i did this here's my footprints and you know we won yay i'm awesome and the the, the, obviously because of your successes in the in that arena in the fight against a very important fight against isis speak for themselves it's that level of vulnerability that you get beyond makes it not just a advertisement for Colonel Andy Milburn, but it's a, a, a true memoir. And so I think it's it, it's worth it's worth other future leaders reading. Yeah, I, I hope so. You know, I've had leadership lessons and leadership lessons, not the sort of lessons you get from a book on leadership. You know, I, I am, I, I will say with complete honesty, I could have perhaps should have been relieved uh, of my, <laughs> of, or fired basically in every, at every single rank. Uh, and and I'm here simply because, uh, you know, grace of God and the tolerance of uh, of my my seniors, and, um, and and so, you know, when someone does go through kind of a, a crucible of learning in that sense, it, it rather than let it evaporate, I mean, it it made sense to me to write it down. And there were other reasons to be talked about why sure, why I wrote. Sure. Uh, I found it tremendously therapeutic. Uh, and, but it goes against the grain, right? For Marines to write about their careers, there's very few books out there and I think you know just because of the way the publish the way the publishing business is you look at the book and you think wow it looks like a seal memoir you know and mm-hmm. the, and the mm-hmm. subtitle marine special operations commander at war but it's really not you know it's about it's about a, a journey but it's not I, I think you agree not about just me it's about the people I've served with yeah. um, what advice would you just give to any of these marines who would want to write about their experiences as well um, Definitely buy my book and, uh, and <laughs> take stringent notes. Yeah. In fact, buy five copies. Buy five, yeah, and, yeah, hand them out. Um, yeah. uh, you know, honestly, uh, I couple of recommendations. First of all, if you were writing, if if your goal is simply to be published, and you know, Vic, I know you'll you'll relate to this. Uh, there's a good chance you'll be disappointed. You know, it, it is it is uh, absolutely a bit of a lottery. You know, getting getting things published. If you are writing for the love of writing, writing because you know everyone wants to share what they what they've written. By all means, um, you know, if you're writing for your kids, uh, um, but most of all, you need to write for yourself. You need to enjoy writing. It can't be a chore for you. Now, having said that, it can be a chore when you when you've got a you know you you set yourself a goal the publishers yeah. set you a goal so that here's just the way I handled it I just told myself okay I'm going to sit down um, and I gave myself a target every day 500 words and then a thousand words and then 2,000 right and, and sometimes I'd write more than 2,000 but 2,000 was my goal but rather than f- just agonize over every sentence I just poured it out. All right. And I did, you know, writing is rewriting. You know, that that phrase is so true because the important thing is just get it out on paper. And then second time around, as you edit it and re-edit it, it just gets a little bit easier. And then as you're editing and read things out loud to yourself, 
I can't tell you how important that is. And yeah. someone told me that it's, you know, the sounding of the words, sentences, and you can quickly figure out, oh, man, that sounds really, that sounds clumsy, right? Yeah. Because that's the way you, you read, you know, it's kind of a, a, a voice in, inside, sure. it, inside your head. Um, and, and strangely enough, when I had to read the book for Audible, when I came to dialogue, uh, I realized, ah, you know, that's there's a couple of things in there that I should have made more vernacular. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, when we when we're talking about, and don't worry, I'm not going to get a boring uh, discussion. No, I don't but you know, when you say, uh, you, we never say to each other, "Will you?" You know, "Will you go to the store this afternoon?" We say, "Are you gonna? You gonna go to the store?" Right. Um, but when you write it, you're trying to write good English, so you say. Um, so I guess what you know what, what I'm saying is, do not worry about grammar or anything. When you first write, write what you see in your head and from from memory, and then go back and and keep working on it. And when and and read read sentences that you're having problem with out loud. When you're writing dialogue, always read it out loud. Always imagine yeah. the person saying it. Um, yeah. And, you know, those are things that I had to learn myself. The other thing I would say is by um, Steve, uh, Stephen King on writing, on writing is a yeah. great book yep, because it's kind sure. of a cool book in the sense that he tells kind of, you know, he tells story Talk of, about his, being vulnerable. of his yeah. early life. Yeah. yeah. And some of the problems he went through, you know, drug addiction, alcoholism, uh, but also what it's like writing in a sense in a, in a state of desperation, right? I mean, he was yeah. – he was yeah. uh, he was he had no income at all. I mean, he took some some risks along the way, um, and, and but it also imparts great insights into into writing. You know how to it, without it's without it being a textbook on writing. Um, yeah. That that was a great one. Yeah, which we we read as a textbook uh, in my program. Did you? So, yeah, it's yeah. One of the on the required reading list for. Yeah, I've read it uh, two or three times, yeah. and there's uh, there's another there's another. A uh, couple out there, but Steve King's was the one um, that really stood out. There's another one, uh, Pressman, who wrote Gates of Fire. Of course, yeah, yeah wrote. Um, yeah. Nobody wants to read your shit. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, which is that's absolutely yeah, yeah, you know, which is great. good. And there's a third. Maybe you can help me out here. It's called. It's by Chuck something or other. He wrote uh, the script for Fight Club. Um, I'll, I'll remember it in a moment. I come back Pahane? to. What's that? It's like a, Pahane? It's like Pelichick. It's, yeah, it's like yeah. Something. Second name is begins with P. It's Maybe like a Polish we'll name or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. It's uh, yeah. I've heard. Uh, so some of the folks that I've talked to, they said, just open the file. Just yeah. get in the regular habit. That's like, right. Even if you don't even do anything, open the file. Sit sit down at your desk. Yeah. And in front of the keyboard. Yeah. It, just open it and just give yourself credit for having done that because yep. there's so many other things you could do during your day. The internet's dreadful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you sit down, oh, hey, I'll just check this. And next thing you know, 15, 20 minutes slipped yeah, away. Right. Uh, I know people who actually, you know, disconnect Wi Fi or go somewhere without Wi Fi. For sure. Um, I never got to that point, but I did. I will say it was a significant distraction. So. Um, and then others, uh, so Max Brooks. Uh, I heard him say that a white page is a killer to creativity. Yeah. So like, kind of like you're saying, like, just start getting just it, pour it out. Just, just start start getting it. it out there because a, a blank screen will kill your creativity. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I, you know, I still struggle with uh, writer's block. I mean, I've got sure uh, over the Christmas break, I had an article that uh, I mean, the the editor of the paper was uh, for this particular publication was hounding me quite rightly. I mean, I was a 
over a week yeah, late. Yeah. I kept coming up with excuses. Yeah. I just, you know. But once I sit down and start writing, it just flows and I get in the, it, it, I suppose it's like anything. Um, it's like working you, out, right? Yeah, yeah, once you're in the flow. Exactly. It's like when you don't feel like working out, you tell yourself, hey, I'm just going to go to the gym. I'm going to do a few push-ups, you know, something light. I'm going to ride the stationary bicycle softly. And then you get there and your blood starts pumping and then you, you yeah, develop like, energy. Yeah, exactly. Or not, as and the then, case may be. Yeah, and then the last That's one um, was uh, there's no such thing as wasted writing. So it, just yeah. the fact that you wrote something. That's right. And like you're kind of like what you're saying, like writing is rewriting. Yeah. It's never going to be perfect your first time. So give yourself some grace and yeah. don't beat yourself up. If the first time you write it, because I know all writers who have scrapped entire manuscripts because once they got through the process, like this isn't what I wanted it yeah. to be. But it's not wasted time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tell myself that too. Yeah, I wrote a book proposal during like a few months of – first few months of COVID, but it's a lengthy book proposal. It's like 60 pages, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'll never I'll never write the book because I've just, now I look back and I think, man, this plot sucks. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I'll do a variation of the theme, right? Sure, sure. You There's know, things you're so, going to get out uh, of that. Yeah. I'll use the characters. I'll use certain things from that. Um, but I, but, you know, and it was, a, it was a mental exercise that I think. Any time you practice writing, I mean, you get better. Yeah. So yeah. It's, when speaking yeah. of practice, so you've got a bunch of stuff um, out right now. You're, and congratulations on all your publications um, through War on the Rocks, Task and Purpose, um, and then you had a recent article about your experiences in Somalia. Yeah. So the uh, what's kind of interesting and is a the editor of a, a paper a publication called News Looks, which is. Um, I mean, exactly as it suggested, it's it's kind of a Newsweek type uh, magazine. A um, lot of focus on the Middle East and and Africa, and he commissioned me right to write a a series. You know, I think it's going to be ten, eleven, twelve episodes. But he said, so every article, uh, every article should have some uh, personal experience part in it. That's that draws the reader mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be a link to policy in there, right? Um, so, uh, and that's not actually difficult to do. Uh, it, it the the difficulty is making that blend in, you know, a thousand words without sure. it being clunky. Right. And uh, and so I really enjoy that. I enjoy that challenge. And so you see, you, you know, the the first one was just a reflection of. Uh, I mean, it was kind of uh, the intro article was about in the aftermath of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the loss of thirteen Marines. And and just kind of the reminder of how uh, how very separate uh, U.S. military culture is from mainstream yeah. U.S. society Absolutely. now that we don't have the draft or anything, and how that means that we really that that there is no driving mechanism for Congress, for instance, to provide oversight for foreign policy, in a sense, because no, there's not skin in the game. Right, it's not like Vietnam mm-hmm. where. You know, despite college deferments, everyone your draft was universal, right? It was yep. a universal experience, and we don't have that anymore. So, anyway, without it sounding clunky, you know, I I wrote about that. Uh, hopefully, without sounding it um, clunky, and then uh, and then this last one was about Somalia. You know, it's a Somalia because Somalia, as we talked about, was a it, it, it's it's not you know people have seen Black Hawk Down, but there's not a lot of discussion about what got us in there. 
and why we uh, pulled out, and most importantly, what are the repercussions of our mm-hmm. rapid withdrawal in the aftermath of Task Force Ranger and the you know the death of 18 servicemen? And arguably, not arguably, I mean very clearly, that was kind of the first link in the chain for our enemies. Yep. You know, uh, America does not have a taste for casualties they have no appetite and yep, and that yep. you know if you just have to follow the progression the um the you know as i said the uh, subsequent uh, uh us um feet dragging on getting involved in the rwanda and bosnia um the the bombings of the embassies in tanzania nairobi the uss coal <laughs> and eventually uh you know, 9-11. Yeah, yeah, all of these sort of probes. Yeah, um, and then the pendulum goes far the other way, right? Now we're all about intervention. <laughs> and, we're thinking, yeah, yeah. and we're thinking of reasons to intervene, as we did in Iraq, and, mm-hmm. and we get involved in these uh, protracted wars, and, they, and a gap appears between policy and, and uh, military actions on the ground that mm-hmm. never really gets resolved. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up while we have you here, and we're talking about writing, and I got two Gazette editors here. If you're trying to write for a publication what uh so you were commissioned to do one but if you're like writing for a gazette or something how do you want to go about uh choosing your topic or reaching out to figure out what topic you should hone in on yeah um that's a really good question so you know the expression write what you know Mm -hmm. uh what i try and do is you know i think about areas that i know and I i and i i think about um okay what what here is would be of interest to a wider audience, not just people who know about that one topic, right? Mm-hmm. So you begin with that topic, but then you expand it. And mm-hmm. I'll give you an example from uh, from the Gazette article. Hopefully, you know, from the Gazette article I wrote in January. Uh, so my so the articles about my experiences getting bringing together and depl- uh, and deploying with a. Uh, combined Joint Special Operations Task Force in the Counter-ISIS fight, all right? A very eclectic task force. It was an ad hoc affair. Um, but it can't just be, oh, hey, here's what I did that summer. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. a, there's got to be, hey, here's why it's important. You right. know, here's, right. here's the relevance to it without, without a tenuous link. And, and for me, very clearly, it was important because the lessons I had learned then, you know, the Marine Corps conventional units are are learning to some extent in in places like MWX. And when you listen to the commandant talking about reconnaissance, counter reconnaissance, and the role of the Marine Corps going ahead, those are all things that we we look you know we had to look at um, in uh, in in Iraq in 2016. Um, how do you influence partners? All right, when you're not actually always physically with them, when you when you are limited by your permissions to accompany them into combat, mm-hmm. how do you still influence them to do the things that you need them to do, you right. know, without being manipulative and mm-hmm. still sustaining. Those right. are all important, you know, important topics. So um, that's just, you know, that's that's one example. Mogget issue, you know, I didn't want to be just, hey, you know, I remember where this happened. Well, I mean, it's it's a fairly interesting story. It's the first um, a, a bloody clash mm-hmm. with uh, Ideed's yes. gunman, and Ideed, of course, was the, subsequently the villain of a Black Hawk Down. And for better or for worse, it was my platoon that first ran into his guys and were involved in a in a firefight. But that by itself is a vaguely interesting story. There's, it's you know, it's not really that interesting. We've had so many firefights since, but the but the chain, the linkage from that to subsequently what happened nine months later, you know, the kind of the, the back and forth, the, the tit for tat, um, ID kills 24 Pakistani peacekeepers, the UN 
goes after him. Um, you know, Unisom goes after him, makes him a targeted individual. But there is no safety valve on this revenge cycle, right? There's mm-hmm. no dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you know, there's nothing occurring at the kind of the diplomatic level. So it's just strike, counter strike. Yeah, yeah. Instead of uh, hey, listen, uh, you know, there's no attempt to negotiate. Hey, give me the guys who killed the Pakistani peacekeepers so we can hold them accountable, and uh, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, and there's a lot of uh, mistakes made on the ground. But the the mistakes that I'm interested there were the operational to strategic mistakes that led to the debacle of Task Force Ranger, and then the to withdraw U.S. troops after what seemed like a decent interval, right? So it didn't look like we're running away. So the Clinton administration waited six months, but everyone knew why we were pulling U.S. troops out of mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. of uh, Somalia. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then the, you know, as I talked about, the follow-on effects from that. Yeah, and I, I think that, so I think what you're saying is, is that whereas in one respect, you don't want it to just be a completely... Um, you don't want it to be a, an after-action report yeah, or just yeah, a yeah. think piece. Yeah. There's got to be some engagement, but at the same time, it has to be – it also can't be so experiential that it's just like, hey, this is what happened yeah. when I was there, you, you know, you summer vacation. Um, yeah. So you have to find that linkage. The bridge to the reader. Right, right. You yeah. know, so the same thing when I write about, uh, you know, much, you know, much more uh, prosaic level. I write about my time at the Recruit Depot, all right? Ho-hum yawn. You know, there I was, series commander or company commander. But actually, it wasn't. It was a really painful tour because it involved the core. Uh, you know, I took over a company that was in the throes of a really feral culture. Twelve drill instructors awaiting court-martial for just bizarre behavior, you know, mm-hmm. like weird homoerotic acts, stealing from recruits, um, all kinds of things. You know, I think I mentioned last time, maybe I didn't, you know, there's one case that stood out of a drill instructor whose thing was to make recruits wash each other's testicles in the shower. So Good these are not, no, you these did are not, not mention that. Okay. Yeah, that's I mean, these are not sort of John A. Lejeune type moments, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, that doesn't uh, go into the, uh, no. in the Super Bowl uh, promo. No. Where's Nancy uh, when you need her to react to that? Yeah, so, and why? Because there was a feral culture within that company. And, and uh, you know, I talk about the mistakes I made trying to fix that culture until finally I figured it out. Uh, well, that's – those lessons are relevant to anyone mm-hmm. in any position right. of management leadership, uh, civilian or military, right? right? Um, there's always a fallout. Abuse, yeah. abuse of power, yeah. Yeah, they, because culture goes south very quickly and there's always uh, – I think you – was it you, Vic, who used another term for it? I say cultural power brokers. I always forget who I was talking to. Yeah, we talked about power brokers yeah. and, and the gatekeepers. And yeah. Things, yeah, yeah, the gatekeepers mm-hmm. of the cultures. So, yeah. in, you know, on the drill field, it's the senior drill instructors. Mm-hmm. And very obvious point. It took me a while to figure that out. And then it took me a while to figure out that unless I, you know, this sounds like totally, total violation of all, everything we learn about leadership. Unless I threaten their position, unless they felt the, the carrot and the stick of, you know, hey, any more of my guys commit a violation of the SOP, whatever it is, I'm going to lose my black belt. And right, if you, unless right. you can connect those dots for them, that stuff was going to continue happening. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I think those are, you know, it's, it's a fascinating exploration into, yeah, power. And what do people yeah. in power do with that uh, power? Abuse and, of power and the fact that um, that often you get people who through their personal charisma uh, will accrue influence 
uh, beyond, far beyond their rank. Yeah. And, and negative influence. And, and so to, to the idea of, like, of writing that is that you can do something about power and you can make it all about the system or about an exploration in power. Or you can do a, a piece that's completely anecdotal. Neither one of those are going to really resonate yeah. with the reader unless you can find that linkage between yeah. the two. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to make it. You, you absolutely I, – I think a lot of times what you're trying to do is – Take the reader and allow them to be in your position right. and see the mm-hmm. things that. Right. Um, and as you well know, that's that's not easy, but it's it's really interesting. I find it really interesting, fun almost, to to do. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, kind yeah. of an investigation of cause and effect almost too. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, drill field. Um, let's talk about it. So you had two experiences on the drill field. One is a, as a I don't want to say young man per se, but as a young Marine, and then a second then as an officer in charge. Let's go even further back and talk about how it is that you ended up on the Yellow Footprints because I think this is a wildly fascinating topic. Yeah, yeah. And I want to just like <laughs> like really dissect almost um, every aspect of it. Yeah, so uh, – you know, I, I, I grew up wanting to join the military, and uh, because I grew up in the UK, well, actually Hong Kong and then the UK, but it was all, it was all British then, it was before Hong mm-hmm. Kong was turned back to China. I, I, I was focused on going to the British Army, and, and bottom line is the British Army would not take me. Uh, I probably like playing rugby at college. I was you know, not a good rugby player, obviously. <laughs> well, and, well, um, can, we, can we back up just a little bit? Um, so about rugby, yeah. because this is something that obviously – in some facets may resonate with our listeners because obviously football culture, you know, talk about power. Like football yeah. culture is the sort of predominant, especially this in this uh, time of year, is the predominant entertainment culture uh, for American society. Rugby uh, is known as the um, what is it? The gentleman, uh, the the. The hooligan sport that's played by gentlemen, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. football is the gentleman sport played by hooligans. Is yeah, that right? football is in soccer. Yeah, soccer. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, rugby, uh, f- you know, for the most part, if you go through the private school system, which is confusingly referred to as the public school system in the UK, <laughs> um, you, you know, you you will play you will play rugby, and um, and, and you know, it's uh, it's. I mean, I. I enjoyed playing it. Uh, wasn't wasn't terribly good, and I was probably definitely playing way above my level. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. and uh, yeah, broke my leg badly. In fact, that's why my leg still only bends ninety degrees. I'm still not physically qualified for the Marine Corps. If you look up, yeah. you know the physical requirements sure. for leg bending. That's why they make you do the duck walk. Duck walk. Um, yeah. So I yeah. Uh, so anyway, so I was confronted. I I I'd chosen to do philosophy at college. I mean I. Uh, because I'd, I was interested in political philosophy, I was interested in ethics, and um, and, and it was it, it was surprisingly difficult to, uh, subject actually. Uh, but then I was confronted with the prospect of graduating with a philosophy degree, which doesn't necessarily have a lot of you know practical application. Yeah, I have uh, one as well, so I know your pain, my friend. Yeah, so we must be among two of very few brain officers. <laughs> yeah, with that's that why background. we're both in this studio and not out. That's right. <laughs> in uniform. Yeah. Um, so, what was your discipline? Uh, what do you mean within philosophy? Yeah. No, we had to do. Uh, I think it's like six 
uh, six areas of uh, philosophy. Okay. Um, so, you know, ethics, logic, I mean, I forget all, uh, religious philosophy, philis- okay. uh, political philosophy. And Ours was a little different. Ours was the ancients, the moderns, oh, right. the postmoderns, okay. uh, and then the eastern. Yeah. And so my focus was eastern. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we still had to do the classics, and we still had to do the moderns, you know, Locke and, and uh, John yeah. Locke and Hume, David Hume. And, you know, I had to do, obviously, Socrates and Aristotle, Plato, and all that stuff, too. But yeah, we, f- we focused towards the end, I, I think, the last year. Um, you know, we, we chose, like, two or three electors. And I want to say um, mine were uh, – they were, actually, a religious philosophy, surprisingly, um, ethics, and um, – Ah, logic. I want to say logic. You never guess it. Is it but, rhetoric uh, or it was logic? It was logic. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of math involved. Yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. Uh, who was anyway. uh, who was your religious? Oh uh, philosophy? goodness! Don't yeah, don't don't start. We're talking like over thirty years ago now. When yeah. People yeah, question yeah. me about philosophy. I mean, I you know I can keep up on stuff uh, like Locke and Rousseau and yeah. stuff that I really enjoyed reading. And, yeah, Descartes uh, and, and I yeah Descartes yeah. and I even reread the Communist Manifesto from time to time. Ooh, careful I'm now. A careful sad, now. sad individual. <laughs> well, no, you gotta study. You know, like you're like ideological enemies you know where they're coming from you know, there's nothing wrong absolutely with not, the problem no. is it's a really compelling just read right like yeah. <laughs> i just say you don't say it out loud that's all <laughs> carl marx knew what he was talking about <laughs> it's a compelling read the the problem is that um you know we now we look at it through the lens of what uh it communism has become in yeah. in practice mm-hmm. well i mean in, in that mm-hmm. in my comment uh, is definitely redis or is an example of what we talked about last time you were on board is that that sort of lack of intellectual curiosity it's like yeah. oh well don't talk to me about that because i know that i disagree with it so i don't even want to know what yeah talking yeah about. i mean you hear people here routinely throw around terms like socialism uh you know without really understanding what it means i mean friend i'll just give you an example i mean it, it, how many times um name the politician gets accused of being a socialist but that you, you know you look at that that uh that particular politician's mandate and there's nothing in there about nationalized industry which mm-hmm. is you know for instance a a, a central theme right. of uh of right. socialism yep. to to many people socialism is um nationalized health care or <laughs> or unemployment benefits i mean right. come on right. you know right. it's it's ridiculous yeah. But those are short reads too. Like you can knock out the oh, yeah. oh, for sure. pesto in an afternoon. Yeah, yeah. If you yeah. really try it, yeah. yeah I think, yeah. In the, well, well, that's a rabbit hole maybe for the <laughs> third <laughs> time to come down. Um, Federalist Papers was a yeah yeah one that right. I surprisingly um, enjoyed. So yeah, so you're studying philosophy. Yeah, you're so, breaking legs. Are you getting legs uh, broken? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I, I uh, finished. My degree at at uh, London University. By the way, I went to um, University College London, and I only mention that because uh, there was a very eclectic mix of students who came out of uh, UCL. And in fact, um, Jihadi John yes. uh, briefly attended. Yeah, <laughs> briefly attended UCL. And um, so, for for I never th- ran into him at an alumni uh, party. <laughs> <but> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so. Um, for those who maybe have been sort of landlocked, uh, their experiences have been sort of landlocked. What is it? What was it like then to be in London in the eighties studying philosophy, but yet having an inclination towards the military? Yeah. So in 
you know, the 80s in London was a very, uh, I, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the 60s through the 80s, very radical time uh, in the sense that, you know, the average British, very European university uh, was by certain standards of the United States. Um, the student body was was pretty intensely left-wing, you know, mm. and, and there was a large uh, activist community within each student body. And, you know, it's funny, I, I meet... Um, my peers now, years on, and of course they've changed. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> they vote for uh, you know the Conservative Party, and yeah. but uh, you know like Churchill. Churchill made a comment that, um, and I'm paraphrasing him, and I know people misquote Churchill all the time. This is not a misquote. He said something. You know, if you aren't if you aren't a socialist before you're 21, you have no heart, and if you don't veer over to the right. By the time you're 40, you have no head. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, um, which is kind of a you know good way of. A uh, good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, what's interesting about that is um, it It really, uh, it, there was kind of this, remember this was uh, the, I'm trying to think, yeah, this is during the Thatcher government. It was during mm -hmm. the, the miners' riots uh, in, uh, miners' strikes in, uh, in the UK. So there's a great deal um there's a great deal of turbulence, and and I mention that because you know some people point with alarm to what's happening in the U.S. now or has happened recently, uh, but that was kind of the norm back in uh, you know um, '60s through the '80s in most European countries. Great deal of turbulence, bitterness, anger, rioting, you know, all over the U.K. Mm -hmm, back mm -hmm. then, and um, the riot, the minor strike was like. War every day on the you know on the picket lines. Is that so. the Geordies? Was that? Um, it, well, I mean Durham, yeah, Durham was involved in okay. that. Yorkshire, a lot of the uh, you know, but it was the age old, um, uh, you know, it was the 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 painful transition from uh, uh, from the manufacturing economy based on manufacturing to you know to mm -hmm. one based on other things, services, finances, and uh, the coal mines were no longer productive. Thatcher government chose to closed them down, which of course threatened the jobs of, um, I mean, yeah. thousands yeah. and thousands yeah. of uh, miners, and became a very bitter. I mean, it was essentially a, a you know battleground. If you look at newsreels back then, sure, the time. sure. And so you mentioned, so you were born in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. So Hong Kong was, of course, a right. British colony back then. My father was in the Hong Kong government. That's amazing. That and he, what was he doing before? Um, before he that? he was uh, so he. Uh, kind of interesting. I'll keep it very, uh, very quick. But my father, uh, his father was killed in the First World War. Like, you know, what, what, like a quarter of the, uh, the male population, right, right, um, right, on the Battle of the Somme. You know, which is now iconic uh, as a, a, I mean, just a, a field of loss. Um, uh, for those of you who, you know, your readers are probably familiar with the uh, some of the facts i mean first uh, first of july 1916 was the first day of the battle of the somme and the british had 50,000 casualties uh just on you know on the first day God. alone i mean it's hard yeah, it's hard to imagine um, yeah. uh so you know the scale of loss was vast my my uh my grandfather was in the grenadier guards uh, which then was kind of you know one of the the elite units and he survived until september before uh before he was killed um, but anyway, my point is, my you know, my father grew up, uh, had to go to uh, just like the only man in the house, went to sea, uh, joined the Merchant Marine at the age of 16, and then went through the Second World War uh, on, you know, as uh, on the transatlantic convoys. And uh, again, for those of you 
um, your listeners at all interested in, in military history. It's it's pretty amazing story. Sort of between 1939, 1941, Britain was kept alive by the United States. The flow of goods back and forth, and of course the Germans. Uh, established a, a U-boat blockade, mm-hmm. understanding that they could starve, you know, with the intent of starving mm-hmm. the country out. And Churchill, again, I'm quoting Churchill, but he said, you know, that was the only time he became seriously worried because they seriously faced the prospect of um, uh, of being yeah. So because they'd lost, mm-hmm. they lost all, uh, you know, the ability to for uh, imports from Europe because, of course, the Germans held all of Europe. So. It was kind of tenuous lifeline, everything being brought across in these slow-moving convoys protected by uh, Navy ships. You know, the U.S. would escort them for the first part, and then there was part, in the, and then they'd turn over to, to the Brits and, and kind of uh, um, once they got outside U.S. territorial waters. And he was, uh, he was a crew of a pretty iconic ship Yeah, the well, Queen right? Mary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, kind of interesting. So he became um, – uh, an officer uh, within the Merchant Marine, and um, you know his forte was navigation. Remember, as a kid who had not gone to s- college or anything, he hadn't, you know, he left school at 16, um, but learned, uh, you know, was taught navigation. And he was the he became the first officer um, on the on the Queen Mary, which is the you know like the XO. Yeah. Uh, yep. And he and and in that position, he was a navigation officer, so he'd have to plot a course across the Atlantic, which wasn't as simple as. Hey, where's you know which way is England? It was <laughs> right. it was they would they would use intelligence reports, f- based you know based on uh, U-boat transmissions trying to work out. I mean, it's a guessing game. Where, where are the most likely points of ambush? How do we fill them this time? What are our last few courses? You know, I mean, it was mm-hmm, quite mm-hmm. and and so plotting that course, you know, you, you're either condemning the ship to maybe certain disaster or or you know finding a gap in right. in the U-boats and. Um, uh, kind of interesting, you know the the U boat uh, the U boat commanders. There was a, a bounty out on the Queen Mary. If they sank the Queen Mary, they could get they could destroy uh, almost an entire U S division. You know, because it wasn't it wasn't foodstuffs. It was U S troops. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after 1941, before 1941. Um, uh, it, it was all, you know, foodstuffs coming yeah. across. But. God. Would his so, picture be up in the Queen Mary right now? Um, I, I doubt it. They, okay. I think they have uh, pictures of, of skippers there. Yeah. Because okay. yeah. I've seen the, the – the, it's like a hall of, of yeah. all the pictures of all the crew from World yeah. War II, and I didn't know. Yeah, so it, for our listeners – yeah. yeah, for our <laughs> listeners who aren't aware, uh, what Nick's referring to is that the Queen Mary is now a luxury hotel – in the port of Long Beach. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Luxury hotel slash uh, probably the best haunted house you can go on. Right. Right. That's what I've heard. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's an amazing visit. Like if you can get to it, you got to get to it. Yeah. But it's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Our my college, uh, we had a uh, we have an annual formal event, and they had it one year at the Queen Mary. So yeah. Yeah, it's quite a uh, quite a story. I, you know, hopefully they they dwell a little bit on the Second World War history because that was truly a. Uh, that was quite something. So, yeah, the Merchant Marine um, suffered a, a cataclysmic amount of casualties, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I forget. Uh, you know, in terms of tonnage, it doesn't really matter because people can't equate that to ships. But uh, you know, they was they were sinking you know hundreds of ships a sure. month, um, uh, and um, and uh, you know, my father uh, for, for my first introduction, I suppose, to what we call PTSD. Now, my father used to have awful. Uh, you know, awful nightmares that used to wake me up as a kid. But Second World War generation, it was, you know, I remember my mom goes, oh, that's normal. A lot of people yeah, in the war have, this, have these mm-hmm. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And uh, yeah, anyway, it's it's quite an interesting aspect of Second World War history. And my, uh, not to bore your listeners, but my, no, um, the, the, now at the same time, there, there were convoys going to the UK and the Brits were running convoys to the Russians, like with a lot of lend-lease stuff. So hmm. US equipment, they would then relay it in convoys okay. up to Russia. And those convoys became notorious for casualties because if guys they weren't um they were the only guys who could pick up survivors were the navy escorts the merchant ships couldn't stop for survivors mm. and so but if you went in the water on one of the so on the uh russian convoys you were you were dead Is within it? minutes yeah, yeah. yeah. okay mm-hmm. and plus um, like you had the submarines going after them but also like the, i think the the luftwaffe hit yeah that's right yeah mm-hmm. um yeah it was uh uh yeah they they were getting hit um you know or, or every uh every day um, anyway, last thing I say in that, there's a great book called PQ-17, Convoy to Hell, um, where the Germans sank literally every single ship in like a 40-ship convoy, you know what I mean? But they, or, or maybe one ship, uh, one ship made it, made it through. Um, I mean, it's grim reading, but just, you know, yeah. what, what those guys went through, what was kind of the norm um, is, is extraordinary. And then the Germans, of course, you know, the tide turned. It's an interesting story. Tide turned with the uh, introduction of Aztec, you know, the um, death program, uh, I mean, depth charges, mm. um, sonar, you know, all these technological yes. used in the right combination um, turned the tables completely, you know, 1943. And, the, and it was the German U-boats that were getting hunted. And if you read, you know, their, their casualty rate was extraordinary. Of course, you sink a U-boat, everyone on board dies. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's over. That is just so fascinating. So then, all right, so then I guess fast forward then, you're leaving university with a broken stick. And it's, was this the moment that you decided yeah. about the Marine Corps? Or yeah. did you, um, you went to no, law school? Uh, yeah, yeah, I went to law school. So uh, they, you had the option to go, if, if you got a degree above a certain level, you could go to law school and do a condensed, essentially a condensed law degree that qualified you then to go to the bar. And so I did. Um, I failed an exam, um, no surprise. And if you failed an exam, you had to take a block of four exams again, even the ones you passed. It was mm. real pain. So I, I was, I had to take a forced sabbatical of the year. During that year, I traveled to Australia, and uh, why Australia? Because I, my girlfriend happened to be there at the time, and I wanted to do this trip as much overland as possible. You know, I didn't want to just <laughs> get on the plane. Um, so and so this was problematic. So this was problematic, and I'm dating myself now, but this was like, you know, fall of 1987, uh, or no, um, early 1987. And so, you know, there was a war in Afghanistan. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. And then uh, Iran was very hostile. I mean, remember the... The revolution that occurred in Iran. Seventy nine, right? Seventy nine. Yeah. Yep. So, and so, uh, and so I had Iraq to choose. I had to choose between the two, and Iran was the less of two evils. I thought, uh, and so I got a yeah transit visa for Iran. I had two weeks to to cross Iran, um, which I did, uh, barely by the skin of my teeth. And um, you know, interestingly enough, I was I was one of the few Americans I think to actually um, experience an Iraqi air raid. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Iraqi. It wasn't. It wasn't bombers. I was in uh, Isfahan, a town called Isfahan. Uh, the Iraqis did use bombers, but they they didn't. Not as deep as Isfahan. It was the beginning of the uh, the War of the Cities. You know, there's like yeah. five um, five separate kind of strikes that the uh, Iraqis did on uh, on Iran, and I happened to be in Iran during one of them. Um, and so I was in a, in Isfahan when it was hit by scuds, and I slept through the entire thing. 
um, much to the chagrin of the hotel staff who apparently were pounding on my door and then disappeared in the, uh, in the shelter. And I woke up the next morning and the area around the hotel was leveled by scuds. But sadly, I've got no personal yeah. – I was so tired. I've got <laughs> well, you had plenty of scud experience later on. So. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, so um, being on the receiving end of a – And you were on the receiving end of a few things on this trip. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was actually arrested in a town called Shiraz. I spent uh, an, an uncomfortable night in uh, in jail there. I was not mistreated. They were actually very courteous to me. Um, and oddly enough, the the lieutenant, the Ira- uh, Iranian lieutenant um, who arrested me or his guys arrested me, was a London University graduate. So uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we were alumni, you know, different sides <laughs> of the bars. Um, and we could talk about the old times and our love of London, but I was still under arrest. Yeah, yeah. And his plan was to send me to Tehran the next morning for questioning. Um, but the next morning, the Revolutionary Guard in Iran, um, you know, it's before we started referring to them as IGRC, we just called them Revolutionary Guard. I say mm-hmm. we, that's how they went out in the West End. They had already taken me off the bus in Tehran and questioned me all night uh, with a, a, a Filipino lady interpreting. Um, and so they were... Oddly enough, satisfied that I was really an idiot, but not a danger to them, and so they, you know, they told this guy, "Hey, let him go." And That's so, insane. Yeah. So uh, it was a yeah, it was a, you know, it was such an eye opener for me. Uh, you know, they, it, there, there was this uh, the the night when I and, and you know when you're a kid, you think, and I wasn't a kid. I was in my early twenties, though. That seems like a kid now, but uh, you know, you always have this feeling that you're immortal, which is why, you know, the military recruits so heavily for 18 20 year olds <laughs> right. you know um and uh and but i remember being taken off the bus and feeling nervous uh and and then taken to a hangar uh by the bus station and questioned and i say all night it's an exaggeration but it was like two or three hours yeah I mean. and um and i remember at one point there's this filipino girl uh translating and of course she was wearing you know uh uh kind of a burqa mm-hmm and at one point I started, I made a joke and she glared at me and she said, you don't understand. You, this is not funny. You could disappear and no one cares. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Okay. It's like, dude, I you care. still yeah. haven't Does figured that out yeah. what's at stake uh, here? But, you know, she was absolutely right. Yeah. And it was a sobering moment um, that I really was in, you know, there was no, there was no recourse. There was no U.S. embassy. There was a Swiss embassy, but they were unlikely to intervene or be able to intervene That's if weird. anything went wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it was a glimpse of, uh, you know, Iranians were super nice people. Ordinary Iranians, super nice people. They bore no hostility to the United States. And more than once, uh, Iranians said to me, when is Reagan going to come and rescue us? You know, it was yeah, interesting. Yeah, really. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, and, you know I, I got glimpses of what uh, the the regime was like uh, in Shiraz. Uh, it was a staging point for the Iran-Iraq war because remember that was in full swing then. Yeah. So there's a lot of wounded. Uh, you know the hospitals were overflowing there because of course you know this was the era of the human waves. You know if you read, I just finished a, a biography of Soleimani. You know, and, mm-hmm. uh, um, I mean the the Iranians were taking staggering casualties. They were putting guys in line without weapons at that point. They were, you know, so desperate. Um, and uh, and as I left Shiraz, the the uh, you know it's like a medieval scene. This is no exaggeration. Um, they they had like gallows on on the hill overlooking town, and they there were like bodies swinging from the gallows. And the guy next to me on the bus said, "Yeah, they deserters, army deserters. They you know get get hung." 
Jeez. So, so why did you get arrested just for being um, a white I, guy? Because, and... you know, I was obviously not a local. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I went running. Um, which is also dumb, you know, you can see I really wasn't thinking. And then uh, I realized I had uh, people running with me who were actually running after me. Yeah, so um, you weren't in a, you weren't yeah. in a, a it a wasn't a competitive hoc yeah. 5k. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> they were wearing boots and carrying weapons. So, um, but yeah, as they say, they were scrupulously good to me. Yeah. Um, I had an, you know, I, I, uh, I, I was advised to, it's another interesting episode. So we stopped, um, what I realized now was near the scene of Desert One, and I forget the name of the town, but they had dragged a helicopter from Desert One and, and built a little kind of a triumphant memorial, not memorial to the Americans, but obviously a triumphant uh, um, a statue to what they called their victory. You know, and I, and I, it, it took me a while. You know, I, it, the, the bus driver stopped, all the passengers got off kind of, you know, to see this. Um, uh, although it, this had happened, you know, six, seven years before, but uh, evidently it was still big enough news. You know, it was still a, it was kind of, a, I suppose, a totemic uh, place for for people to to be able to appreciate the might of the uh, Islamic regime, Republic of Iran. It's so crazy. Um, and and so, it, history buff, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of the the simplistic dividing lines were during that period there was that the u.s backed iraq and the russians the soviets backed iran is that sort of um where the yeah that is a little oversimplistic actually yeah. iran was really isolated uh okay. the, the uh the iranians didn't get a lot of support from um from the russians you know when you read the history of it uh, it's really hard not to feel desperately um, you know, feel sympathy for the, certainly for the Iranian people, the people who are sustaining mm-hmm. this war. You know, tremendous courage, uh, that, you know, for the average Iranian. He believed that, I mean, this was, this was, uh, I mean, this was his country under threat. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, it, and, and the scale of casualties were uh, catastrophic. I mean, if you, you, I think you look it up, I don't want to misquote, but, uh, you know, certainly near a million um, on, the, on the Iranian side for a relatively small country, right? Yeah. Um, a million, close to a million casualties, you know, for a country. I, I, I forget what the population was then, but uh, extraordinarily high. So you went basically from the frying pan into the fryer because your next destination was Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, so I got to... Uh, um, so, so your I got dad to, got uh, all the navigation skills. I, I, I got to uh, the border place. Uh, it's a town called Zahidan, which is... Uh, Right on the border with between Iran and Pakistan, and um, they they only opened the border during the day during certain hours, so I had to wait there until the border opened the next night. And uh, um, I had by then uh, it turned out to be dysentery. I mean, I was really sick, oh. you know. So those of you who had dysentery, it's yeah. a very unpleasant experience. So I spent um, and and their latrines were not, um, you know, they were not like so water closet. They weren't state of the art, no. you know. It was like at the bus station. No great plugins like, in there. Yeah, um, <laughs> I would I would choose a, a cat hole in Twenty Nine Palms any time. But anyway, so I'm 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 uh, I'm downloading um, in in uh, this this bus station toilet, um, squatting over a, a hole, and I start to hear rocks bounce off the roof. It's corrugated iron roof, and uh, this crowd is gathered, figured out. I'm a foreigner, and they're throwing rocks at the, you know, and could it just been kids or youths? But it's fairly threatening, yeah, you know, some yeah. yelling. Um, 
so I finished anyway. I came out and uh, um, the crowd started like following me down the street. Something by then I'm getting worried. Yeah, it's not another five. Um, yeah. yeah, and then yeah, and and I was just uh, you know I was thinking just about to break into a run though. I figured that might be a mistake. Came around the corner and there's a there's a like a border guard police station Iranian of course, and I I just went in and said, hey man, I I've got these dudes following me. Can you put me up for the night? And they were like, they were actually pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and they did. So I got, I stayed in a cell, you know, the door open. Yeah. So my yeah. second night in a cell, but this time, uh, um, and the next morning they, they took me to the border. They escorted me um, to make sure nothing went wrong. I got into uh, Pakistan and, uh, you know, this is, this was during a particularly turbulent time. And so what had happened in Pakistan, unbeknownst to me, is there had been, there was rioting taking place in Kedah. You know, and uh, of course, Keta, home of the you know Taliban, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, again unknown to me at the time, but it was over bus seats um, between the Baluchis and uh, the Patans, uh, um, Pashtuns, uh, you know, both very yeah. belligerent people, and sure. so they were happy to kill each other over bus seats. And then the Pakistani came in. The Pakistani army is not renowned for its restraint in these situations. <laughs> right. So they were also shooting people in the street and had imposed 24-hour curfew. And so I found myself arriving, arriving in Kedah to this scene that did look like the aftermath of a battle. I mean, there were bodies in the street and, and Pakistani patrols carrying Lee Enfield rifles, by the way, antiquated oh, things, really? but still Good deadly. Um, and I, I stayed in this uh, hotel that was uh, definitely not four stars. Um, until, you know, for, for 36 hours until uh, the next train to Islamabad. And then even on the train, and um, I'd, I'd linked up with an Australian guy on the train. So we, uh, um, but the Pakistani um, army would board the train at various places, I remember that night, and just grab people, haul them off, you know, if they figured they'd been involved, I guess, in whatever, riots. And it was, a, yeah, it was a real eye-opener. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, now I look back, um, probably uh the, one of the times i've been in most danger in my life despite subsequent combat tours and uh and indeed when i got um when i got down to uh islamabad and went into the u.s embassy and this is really why i joined the u.s marine corps okay i'll get to that in a moment but i found out from at the embassy american embassy when they heard i'd come out of iran they they told me the story about an australian australian italian kid about my age who went going the other way from uh, Iran up through to Turkey. I mean, from um, Pakistan up to Turkey through Iran was arrested and um, treated uh, treated pretty roughly. Uh, they put him through you know like a mock execution, and um, when he was released, he was you know he's obviously pretty messed up. So I I was fortunate. Anyway, hey, I go into the embassy and I meet I and I you know I I pick up my passport, which is the reason why I'm going there. My my parents had sent it ahead. Um, I was traveling on a British passport, considered wise not to travel on an American passport through Iran. So at least I had that much sense. Yeah. Um, and I'm eating in the cafeteria there in the U.S. Embassy, and I see these guys, and they just kind of reek discipline and health, you know, and they've got short cropped hair and, uh, and muscular. Um, and I think, and, uh, you know, don't get the wrong picture, you know, I'm not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. But <laughs> I'm like, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, but they, they, you know, they asked me over, um, sat down, I mean, they were like, hey, you the guy who just went through Iran? I went, yeah, yeah, because the word got round in the embassy. Hey, this is yeah, wacko, <laughs> just <laughs> came out of Iran, you know. Um, 
So they they thought that was pretty cool, and I got invited to a party that night at the Marine House. Of course, these are MSG Marine Security Guards, right? Yeah. And they don't live. Their life is not the norm for the right, average right. The Marine, Marine house right? Is always yeah. Nice. So I go to the Marine house and it's this palatial place. They've got a swimming pool. Um, they beautiful women are attending this party. There's a you know there's a, a open bar, um, and I'm thinking this is a pretty cool life. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up for this one, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, fast forward. Um, about seven, seven months later, you know, I end up in Australia. About seven months later, I go back to the UK. And again, I go to the US Embassy in London, and I forget why. And I run into the one Marine recruiter in London, 1987. And uh, cut a long story short, I was his project for 1987. I probably filled the one quota. He I was going to say, yeah. what was the quota yeah. like for... Oh, yeah. But I, you know, I drove a really hard bargain with him. Uh, remember, I just finished law school. I was guaranteed PFC out of boot camp and guaranteed infantry. Yeah. Yeah, I rung him Well, dry. yeah, you really oh, got yeah. him by he's, the... He's probably, yeah. <laughs> he's probably, he's probably still sweating that story. It's like, damn, that kid was tough. <laughs> How did he do it? Yeah. Anyway, fast forward, ended up in Paris Island where I was the source of much amusement to the drill instructors. Yeah, so what is and that? And he uh, earned the moniker Boy George. Oh, um, very nice. And, uh, <laughs> and almost sent home several times because I failed every physical from MEPS onwards. Uh, but my recruiter was a smart guy. Not only had he, f- had he you know, <laughs> recruited someone out of law school and persuaded him to join the infantry with one stripe <laughs> on that shoulder, <laughs> but uh, he figured out that if he – Got me. This is a true story. These are all true stories, by the way. Um, if you got me a one-way ticket, uh, it would be very difficult to send me back. And they could not work out. They could work out funding lines at MEPS to send me anywhere in the United States, but not across not, the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's bottom line is Genius. that's yeah. That's how I ended up 31 years later retiring as a colonel. Yeah, and so even as an American, someone carrying an American passport, the when you're feet hit the yellow footprints that was the first time on you had been on u.s soil correct? well maps was new york and oh then, maps new york okay. yeah yeah and then paris island yeah. yeah i mean so paris island was my ellis island yeah um but i was thinking yeah this place sucks man why does everyone want to come to this country everyone yells at you <laughs> and uh of course the accents down there then because all the drone structures seemed to have southern accents and mm. it was to me impenetrable way of speaking absolutely <laughs> impossible <laughs> I mean, it still like is. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's to be challenging for sure. Um, and then your uh, so as you're going through, then your first when was the first experience where you had being an American, not under the confines of the rigid oh yeah boot camp um, structure. Yeah, so uh, Camp Lejeune, right? So I went through the School of Infantry in Camp Lejeune, and that was. Uh, that that was just uh, that was like a, a holiday camp after you know yeah, camp yeah. guy even camp guy you get leave now or you get liberty um, yeah even. yeah you get off and you know I, one one thing I really treasure even to this day are the friendships I made um, I mean I, I'm not in contact with any of those guys again but I made really good friendships at boot camp and then at SOI yeah. and uh, and it's something that will be familiar to all of your readers in the military um, you, you know even then I mean peacetime. Um, just going through those experiences, you build pretty strong bonds and, and really, you know, great, great guys. And it makes, um, 
And you're about, what, 10 years older than a lot of these no, cats? Well, no, point, not right? quite. I was 24. Oh, okay, 24. Yeah, okay. so not that much older, but I was certainly older than my drill instructors. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, I wasn't even the oldest guy in the platoon. We had a guy who was 27. Um, I mean, we did until they found out he'd been he'd done time in prison for armed robbery, um, mm. and he disappeared like in month two. But, uh, but yeah, great, great friends. You know, and so weekends in Wilmington um, – a lot of you know, a lot of drinking and sure. hanging out in hotels on the on the beach and usual escapades that yes, young Marines, that ensue. Yeah, but harmless <laughs> stuff, you know. I mean, we um, and uh, just a great time. Um, yeah. So that I there don't want to. Yeah, I, I don't want to bore all your. No, no, no. This is was, so good. This is so good because that yeah, was a journey. There's so many, <laughs> so many interesting little, little things there. I mean, is is. You know, to say that there's a standard or a conventional way that a Marine becomes a Marine is probably an, over, an oversimplification. Yeah, but absolutely. I would say, though, that, like, being able to sort of dissect and, and really, like, examine your journey is really special. And I think it's it's a lot of – it's fun now, I'm sure. Obviously, <laughs> at the time, doing all these ad hoc 5Ks probably wasn't awesome for you. But, I mean, what a what – a, what an interesting and really fascinating journey. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and I know, again, like you're super generous with your time, so I really appreciate it. But I do want to talk a little bit now. So let's just fast forward 31 years. Yeah, yeah. And we had talked about some of your publications and things. Um, you have another uh, project that you're working on. Is that correct? Um, and as we look at... Force Design 2030, oh, some yeah. of the challenges that the Commandant is coming up against to yeah. tries to position yes. us for the future. So, you know, I have to preface this by saying, as you know, you know, I'm not uh, – I, I don't automatically write in defense of, uh, you know, the institutional commands and everything. But I, I do feel compelled to comment and write about um, things that are happening in the Marine Corps now. You know, there's been I, – I mean – I. The the problem is this that that even people who think that they are innovative thinkers and revolutionary, um, I think, become very easily tied to the status quo. And so, you know, there's a great deal of emotional uh, discussion now about um, about getting rid of tanks, mm-hmm. um, getting rid of the AAV, which <gasps> I think, yeah, which I think you agree was obsolete the day it was made. Um, <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, but, you know, you know uh, and, and, and people, RV you know, I mean, forever. I know you do a series called Amphibiosity, and I think my point was earlier, in which I stand by, is, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing particularly inherently, uh, you, you, we shouldn't feel automatically, reflexively, tied to our amphibiosity. I mean, we are an adaptable organization and right. any healthy adaptable, any healthy organization needs to adapt to survive. Not our, you know. not our equipment set. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Or, or, our, or our immediate mission set. You know, I mean, look at the Marine Corps history, just 20th century, you know, gone from the land battles, iconic land battles of the First World War to the Banana Wars. And then thanks to uh, an, an errant eccentric uh, alcoholic, Pete Ellis, uh, <laughs> who who would have been discharged as a as a <laughs> lieutenant in, in uh, today, yeah, um, yeah. you know we we get pulled into uh, and I say we, but you know Ellis died in twenty three, um, but he wrote a book uh, in uh, nineteen twenty one that 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 um, predicted a Japanese offensive. Uh, you know they, 
almost almost exactly the way it was going to happen uh, 20 years later, 20 years later, right? Um, and, and then the uh, Pacific Island Hopping campaign that the Marines would have to do. And uh, his book, because uh, Ellis, uh, because of his background, he had his First World War veteran, um, and he'd become close to Lejeune. At one point, he'd been on Lejeune staff after Ellis, uh, Ellis was wounded um, First World War. Um, and, uh, and so Lejeune kind of looked out for him. And so his ideas gained traction. You know, the people didn't think of him as just some lunatic. They knew he was a mm. bright guy. He had issues, definitely. I mean, he was hospitalized regularly for his alcoholism. Lejeune even interceded several times uh, to prevent him from being discharged from the Marine Corps. You know, so I suppose Lejeune was, in a sense, an enabler, but thank mm. God he was. Right. Um, and uh, and uh, Ellis foresaw this. Uh, and, and the Marine Corps, um, in, instead of saying, hey, the Banana Wars are our thing, uh, you know, with some prodding from the commandant then, uh, started to get busy on preparing for amphibious war. I mean, those, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shoehorning this because, sure, you know, it's over the period of years mm -hmm. in the 30s is where it really picked up yeah. uh, steam, you know, with the development of the Higgins boat and yeah. tactics. Um, but there are definitely but nevertheless, Ellis, yeah. Ellis was the guy, uh, arguably, he, he was certainly uh, instrumental. And uh, sadly, he died uh, on uh, Pelor. In, uh, in the South Pacific in 1920, I want to say 1923 at the age of 43. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the time that he was a victim, you know, the Japanese had killed him, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, most historians think that's absolute mm -hmm. BS now that he probably died of alcoholism. I mean, mm -hmm. he died uh, because he, he really was a, an intense drinker, intense thinker and intense drinker. Can you imagine doing all that, writing all that, uh, the writing way he did and the, uh, um, but but still suffering. From yeah, well, I mean, yeah. we're talking about. You have to King. point to me. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm <laughs> not in This is just a thing. Get a reaction. But but anyway, Stephen anyway. King, yeah, so my yeah. point is, look, what you know, what, what's happened to the Pete Ellis's of the world? So now um, we are. We we realize we collectively that um, everything you know. So. The, the, the primacy of the kill chain, down from tactical level, I talked about this last time, squad level, um, the, the method, uh, methodology of warfare that we are currently using, close with and destroy the enemy using squad automatic weapons um, with you know, some indirect fire, is, is antiquated and outdated. And what the Turks uh, are doing, what the Iranians have been doing with drones, and Turks in particular dr uh, using expendable blue-collar drones in conjunction with loitering munitions, and track what they've been doing in Syria, Libya, um, and guess what? Most recently in uh, Ethiopia, uh, where they've turned around the Tigrayan army. You know, all drones doing this at range. Um, and we're still pursuing an acquisition process, carriers and ACVs and, <laughs> right, you yeah. know, these Gucci uh, uh, expensive but already obsolete Huge. pieces of right. equipment, outranged, outdated, vulnerable. And so, you know, what the commandant's trying to do and I, I don't speak for him, and I'm not paid to speak for him, but um, is, is kind of drag the Marine Corps into this part of the 21st century. Uh, and we haven't got our hands around it again. And I'm not agreeing with everything the Commandant says. I think there's a danger in us being wedded too closely to the Navy. I don't think the Navy's particularly interested in, our, in what we think our role is. You know, I'm generalizing here. Right, right. I think um, there's danger in getting um, too focused on us firing the Naval Strike Missile. I, you know, I think, and, and I think even perhaps the Commandant's thinking that too now as he talks about our role being as sensors, a reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance. But we... We collectively haven't figured out what that's going to mean for training and, and doctrine. Um, 
you know, we, we're experimenting in one place on 29 Palms uh, through the MWX, uh, but, but that's kind of a, it's almost like a silo out there. You know, we, I think mainstream Marine Corps needs to be dragged in. And I don't know if people are deliberately dragging their feet or, or not, but, you know, why? But we still have people, you know, we still have people bleeding for the tanks. I mean, you know, you just want to say, shut up, or and AVs. Yeah. Um, we, we still have people pursuing acquisition of the ACV, which, as I've said, is, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to envision a useful, a, a useful role for this vehicle unless we're rolling right back into counterinsurgency. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. heavy. It guzzles gas. It's vulnerable, um, and it does nothing to extend our kill chain. Instead of investing heavily in long-range precision munitions like loitering, you know, like expendable loitering munitions, instead of training our guys uh, to use drones and and developing an expendable uh, drone that we can use in swarms, you know, just the way our our adversaries are. It's time to start learning from our adversaries. I will shut up. I know. I've, uh, no, no, no. All good. No. And so. Um, um, and so this push and pull that you're looking at then, it's it's adaptation, and or is, or is it uh, interpretation? Where is it that you feel the commandant sitting, and then like where where's the push? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think honestly, um, from those who oppose what is happening, uh, it's a failure of imagination. Okay. Um, uh, you know, for a, and I would like to say it's a failure to look at our own history, but. But some of the senior retired officers who are pushing back are very well aware of the Marine Corps history. So I, I'm, I, you know, I think the the danger is this: that um, as you know, we we view the world obviously through the prism of our lifespan. Okay, this is don't worry, I'm I'm not going to wax lyrical and full of philosophy <laughs> here. But that's what we do. Mm-hmm. So if you get a guy who spent 40 years in the Marine Corps and X, this is what he knows, you know these things, they become iconic to him and they assume an importance uh, that is that, that they probably don't deserve when you look at the lifespan of the Marine Corps or, you know, mm-hmm, past mm-hmm. And, and hopefully future. Um, and so people become wedded to these iconic symbols, whether it's the tank, whether it's the AAV, whether it's even our vision as an, a, you know, an amphibious entry force, instead of trying to figure yeah. out, okay, where are things going now? What is happening in the world now? How do we adjust? Yeah. Yeah, would you say that like the loitering munitions, like the expendable, uh, like tiny drones, like you can hold them in your hand, right? The uh, kind of like represent kind of like a, a watershed, like a dreadnought moment, like uh, yeah, I, I yeah, I think yeah. I think that's a great I think that's a great example, um, or or similar to you know hundred years ago, beginning of the First World War, where development of the machine gun, um, wired communications um, uh, made uh, put made the, the strongest form of warfare very firmly, you know, handed, handed the, uh, the baton to the defense, right? Mm-hmm. And it took hundreds of thousands of casualties and several years to figure out a way around that. And the Germans started experimenting with stormtroop tactics. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and then eventually, you know, there's a development of the, uh, what's, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm trying to remember the vacuum. Like the thing that transit, that, the uh, the development that enabled you know portable radios and all those things. Oh, the um, vacuum the, tubes. Yeah, the vacuum that, tubes that, that, that then you know the that, and, uh, and faster yeah. tanks and everything that mm-hmm. helped develop um, you know blitzkrieg tactics. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know the ability to talk to aircraft. There, mm-hmm. blah blah. So you know it's technology combined with uh, 
imagination, right? Yeah. Um, I would say that part is lacking now. We have, of course, we have the technology, you know, to to uh, to quote the the intro of the Six Million Dollar Man for some of your older viewers. <laughs> I know. Of, <laughs> yeah, of course. What's that? Not a, what's that modern? It's not even a technologically yeah. high bar. Yeah. But the problem is, we are because we're Americans. We're wedded to um, high price. You know, low, uh, relatively uh, low density items. Well, in a certain way of doing business too, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'll, I'll give you, uh, and and so um, our adversaries can run circles around us um, using uh, lower tech. That um, the, you know, for instance, uh, the attack on the Aramco oil uh, processing facilities in the two locations in Saudi Arabia, 2019, um, swarms of drones penetrated the, you know, the Saudi air defenses and Saudis have Patriot missiles, but they were useless against mm -hmm. these things. And right. it was very similar, um, you know, historical analogy, not, not the dreadnoughts in this case, but 1941, May of 1941, the British launched a, um, an attack on the Bismarck, which was the, you know, the German state of the art, uh, mm -hmm. pocket battleship, right? Um, and they used the swordfish biplanes. Swordfish, yeah. fairy swordfish biplanes. Yeah. And they they didn't cripple Bismarck, but they significantly damaged the slowed it down, made it vulnerable for subsequent destruction um, without a loss of a single biplane. And, and uh, you know, the Germans themselves, uh, it's quite interesting, there's a YouTube video on this, looked at why that happened. And uh, it was the Germans had a, a uh, state-of-the-art fire direction system that was incapable of tracking... A plane as slow as the ferry swordfish, <laughs> yeah, and it was flying, too, right? flying as low as the yeah. ferry, ferry, uh, ferry swordfish. They had uh, point detonating shells that passed right through the fabric because they were, you know, they were designed to impact on detonation with metal. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I mean, it's kind of a, it's not a hundred percent analogy, but that's similar yes, to yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. A, British didn't know that at the time, but it was uh, you know, it was, it was a fluke. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has all been so great. Again, um, thank you so much for coming on. Did you guys, did you have anything else? Well, you mentioned, like, you know, like, uh, using your analogy of, like, uh, handing the baton off with different technologies. Where is the baton right now? Hmm. Wait, you mean as far as within the Marenko? Um Or you, you can, no, we can do internationally as well. Like, with the I'm, No, I'm trying to think people. back where I said. Like, no, handing. so you said, like, like, uh, like the machine gun and... Um, Oh, uh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah unmanned systems, right? Um, Mass-produced, fairly sophisticated, but expendable systems. When I say fairly sophisticated, I mean um, the you know having having the means to um, uh, you know you can uh, electro you know to have a electro mag uh, electro optical sensors you know and or even signals intelligence. So um, pretty advanced target designation. Um, but at the same time, not so expensive, you know, it, contrast with our own, you know, MQ1s or MQ9s, where if there's an SA, a significant ADA threat, as there was in Yemen, we ground them. Well, that's the whole point of unmanned systems is supposed to be that they're expendable, right? right? Well, and then also, too, like the, the point of use, like it does, you don't have to have a ton of training to no, be able to employ exactly, these things. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we don't train our guys very well in the use of, UA, you know, we stuff, spend a right? lot of time still... You know, quite rightly, with marksmanship, of course, that's important. Or, you know, had a clearer blockage on the saw. But the, you know, the uh, or, uh, or, you know, I was yeah. trying to think yeah. of an analogy. Well, when we, when, when we first got our own little, you know, squad drones that were just used for surveillance, yeah. we had to send folks to Al-Assad 
and they would just get a quick class. Yeah, whatever it was, it was the dragon. Yeah, dragon. the one that you you put together yeah. out of your backpack, you throw like it and an it FX crashes. Model. Yeah, yeah, and then you. <laughs> Um, but Both. yeah, so we had to send some operators to get those. Uh, but yeah, that was one of those sort of yeah. Quick I mean, it's uh, like it's not a, a this is not a special operations uh, um, skill. But yeah. we we don't you know again again at MWX we say where are your pumas? Uh, yeah, they all broke or we didn't bring them <laughs> yeah. or you know because right. it doesn't seem sexy and we're not we just not we we're not in that mindset yet. Um, as far as use of low-training munitions or long-range precision fires, you know, MOSOC has the heroes. But there's no reason why we can't afford to push even, th you know, even start with something like the switchblade, you know, which the media is fond of calling a kamikaze drone. But it's a – it's loitering munition, but it's shorter range, 10 mm -hmm. kilometers. At least that's better than anything available at squad level right, right now, right? Right. Mm -hmm. right? Frankly, you know, at battalion level, unless you've got call for the fire for artillery, and that's another – that's another story is that um, we, we're not even good at closing the kill chain with the things that we have right now below platoon level. Seriously, we don't – we very rarely at MWX see that happen. Mm. Uh, we just haven't – we talk the big game, but we don't, we don't conduct training in a way that it becomes habit of action for a squad leader to pick up a radio and call for fire and get the people he needs on the net, on the net. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's too – Conduct to find that often doesn't go, you know, down to uh, below platoon level. Yeah. And who so. are we talking to? Is there any guys were talking to uh, Colonel Howe that he was talking about having someone uh, to expand the squad capability, like on hand? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. What, what you end up – you send out these people, these specialists, and then where do you put them? Um, and if a – Commander doesn't have the intellectual curiosity yeah. to figure out what that person uh, 100%, does. 100%. Like, they just uh, sit in the COC. Um, signals intelligence, EW yep. is a big thing. Yep. And, you know, time and time again, um, you know, you, you'll have, uh, what are they called? What are we calling them now? Radio, uh, uh, you know, the, the radio battalion guys are going to be pissed at me. But, you know, the, <laughs> the, like there's, there's teams down at, it's, uh, that are intended to be attached at platoon level that can conduct a range of, of uh, activities within the electromagnetic spectrum from collection through jamming, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hugely important. They, we should integrate them in the same way that we integrate forward observers and everything else at our disposal. Also, yeah. yeah, tactical cyber, right? Why, why, is, why are cyber missions held at so high a level? Mm -hmm. We can destroy things. We can drop bombs on things. We can mortars. We can kill people. But we can't use offensive cyber operations to to uh, suppress or, or uh, disable or neutralize right. um, enemy uh, C2 systems, right? Why not? You know, I mean, it's uh, uh, used to the information spectrum, uh, targeting the enemy. Um, I mean, literally targeting the enemy, the text messages. Hey, if you do this, this is going to happen to you. Um, we, we, again, we can, yeah. we can shoot people all day, but we can't send them. And we and we talked to you last time you were here about some of the successes you had integrating that at just the yeah. team level um, and working in multiple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the point is that these are this is a mindset. These are techniques that should not be confined to special operations forces. There's no reason. There's mm -hmm. no reason to. You know, look at all, look how well Marines are trained in some areas. How proficient they are in some areas. Look at the money we have to spend on, you know, various things. Um, the state of, which is good, but over in MCO, they've got the most extraordinary state-of-the-art audiovisual equipment now for Zoom so that anyone speaks, a camera goes, you know, mm. focuses on them and it automatically, you know, it's an right. automatic directional camera and 
uh, microphone. I mean, I haven't seen anything like it at Joint Special Operations University. Uh, okay. Uh, but, I mean, that's tremendous, of course. But my point is the Marine Corps is on – should be on the cutting edge when it comes to right. weapon systems unemployment. And if any one of our listeners has any ideas on how to get on that cutting edge, please write to the Marine Corps Gazette. <laughs> Love please. the plug. Love yeah. the plug. Well, Andy, thank you so much again for being here. This has been awesome. And uh, what, what can we expect from you next? Uh, what, what should we be looking out for? Um, so we're interviewing the Commandant and Christian Bros for the Irregular Warfare podcast. Christian Bros wrote the book uh, The Kill Chain, which I recommend to uh, your listeners. Um, so by the time this gets aired, that podcast will be out. Look up the regular, regular warfare podcast. Just Google it. Um, and I think you'll find, uh, everyone will find episodes there that they enjoy. It's like a 40 minute segment. You can listen to it while, I don't know, while you're, you know, running or driving to work or on the toilet, um, depending <laughs> yeah. on your, your daily routine. <laughs> yeah, well, please, hopefully you're not yeah. on there for 40 minutes, but you can catch yeah. it in multiple iterations. Look down so, below. You'll find a link to it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put a link yeah. at the show. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and, uh, you know, there, I'm, I'm continuing to write the series on uh, kind of episodes from my life, but connected to, you know, the policy level kind of uh, yeah. decisions. That's in Newslook magazines. Newslook um, magazine, yep. Okay. And please, please, buy my book. Buy the book. Buy yeah. The, buy the book. I, it's an when audible the version. Gathers. I, I, I read the audible version myself, which is not <laughs> a good advertisement necessarily, but... Um, it was tremendously difficult, and it and it's cheaper to buy it it's an audible version than in hardback, and it's pretty. Cool. And same yeah. thing, yeah. While you're driving, doing chores around 100%. the house, well, buy the hardcover if you I'm can, because it looks good on a bookshelf. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, well, sir, thank you again so much for being here, and uh, we'll look to get you back. Yeah, awesome. Thanks okay. so All much, right. guys. Right. I really Thank appreciate you. it.